Hello, everyone. Uh, good evening. And I want to say thank you to Donna for that um, gracious introduction. And uh, as she mentioned, we met about three years ago, and uh, I just appreciate her walk with Christ. And what I think I appreciate most is the authenticity and the practical way in which she lives out her faith. And it's a testament to the grace that we have received. Also, I'd like to thank Clark and Labrie Canada for the invitation. Uh, it has been certainly um, an honor for me to um, prepare for this and, and just to be a part of your Friday night discussions. And uh, lastly, I, I want to thank my um, family, my parents, my siblings, cousins, um, those who are in Ithaca, New York with me. It's late for us here in New York. It's late for those um, who are in the Eastern time zone, so, or even central time zone. But thank you so much for tuning in and, and for being a part of this discussion. Um, tonight, we want to discuss a Pauline approach to reconciliation in the context of 21st century missions. And tonight, I hope to be able to get through all of this uh, before we open up the floor for discussion, but I'd like to talk about the um, Roman Empire in Paul's time, and it's going to be a cursory overview and when I say cursory, I mean very, very brief. Uh, I'm just going to highlight really a couple of things there, but just to help us to get the context of um, the setting in which Paul was, was writing. And then I'll talk a little bit about Paul's purpose for writing Romans. Um, we'll talk about the significance of the gospel, particularly the significance of the word gospel. And then we'll look at Paul's um, reconciliatory uh, theology as it relates to missions um, in the 21st century. And then we'll open the floor for discussion. So um, I'm probably looking most to the discussion part so that I'm mm -hmm. not the only one uh, speaking. <laughs> so uh, as, as I was preparing for this, I, I was thinking a lot about good news. Um, the gospel we, we translated in English as good news. And so I was thinking on good news and thinking, hmm, what, what do we um, think about when we think about good news? And I hadn't thought about this um, uh, story I'm going to tell you in many, many years, but I was um, new to Russia. I had just gotten to Russia uh, as a missionary and had been there maybe six to eight weeks. And I was uh, just arrived back at my um, home from teaching at the university. And the receptionist, I lived in, a, in somewhat of a, a dorm type building and the receptionist met me, she was excited. She said, Lisa, um, and this was in Russian. So this is what I think she was telling me that someone <laughs> <laughs> so someone had called me and um, their Russian was, was uh, she said, your, a cousin called you, your cousin called you 
And I'm thinking, uh, okay, and, and that was exciting. And then she said, and his Russian was near perfect. And immediately I knew which cousin it was. Um, so it made me just feel really excited. If you've ever received good news, um, it's like you're excited about the good news and you know getting it. But if you've ever received good news and you were in a foreign land, it's almost hard to describe that feeling that you have of receiving some good news and being far from home, receiving news far from home. And so I, I was just really excited about having received um, a phone call from my cousin. And it gave me, um, oh, excuse me, sorry. <laughs> it gave me um, hope, it gave me, uh, it, it encouraged me and um, it lifted my spirits. And tonight, that's what I wanna talk about, how the good news is hope, it lifts our spirits and um, it encourages us. But I want to talk about it from a lens that through, through the lens or from the perspective that some of you may not have, have heard before, but I wanna talk about it through um, Paul's um, lens as he was writing to the Romans with the backdrop of the Roman Empire um, and the deep-seated conflict that was ongoing between Jewish and Gentile, Gentile Christians. And um, if we are going to understand a, a little bit about the Roman Empire um, that existed during Paul's time, it's necessary for us to um, look at that and to look at it through the way that Paul was actually seeing it. Too often, I think we've missed the brutal tension that existed between the Jews and Gentiles. And, and so when we miss that, we actually miss Paul's central message to um, this letter, and that is reconciliation. Um, so with that, um, let's get started into the um, lecture. So um, when Paul wrote to the Romans, the Roman Empire at that time had had only five emperors. And so it was fairly new, even though it had been in existence for, for many, many, many years, but in the, in, the, in the light of history, it was still a very um, new em empire. And they were still, as you could say, getting their footing, getting their um, understanding of, of the world and, and, and what they wanted to do on the world stage. Um, and so the, the, the first century church experienced the Roman empire in its infancy. And many of the apostles and the New Testament writers were influenced by its control. And when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, uh, the Roman Empire had, as I said, only five, only five um, emperors. And so um, its lasting impact is still seen today. And I would say that the five, the first five emperors uh, were probably um, influential in not only the governing and what they did for Rome, but also what they did for future 
um, for future, if you want to say uh, ruling nations, I won't call them empires, but for future ru ruling nations. So they had a huge impact on nations like uh, Turkey, uh, Russia, Germany, just to name a few. And um, if we if we want to look at it through those lens, we're going to then have to open ourselves up to what we find because we know that when we come to scripture, sometimes we're basically superimposing onto the scripture our own culture. But if we look at Romans in the proper context, it's impossible to impose our own Western culture on it and come out with what Paul was actually saying to the Russians, uh, to, I'm sorry, to the, um, to the Romans. So um, let's look at the first five uh, Roman emperors. The first one was, we probably know all of these names, Caesar Augustus. Um, and then we have uh, Tiberius, uh, Calugula, Calugula, Claudius and Nero. And it, we're going to focus a little bit more on uh, Claudius and uh, because he's the central of what I wanted, or the point that I'm making here. But the names of the first five, the, the full names, Caesar Augustus, <coughs> Tiberius Sirius uh, Caesar Augustus, Gaius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, and Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. And, and basically Germanicus just is like what we would consider a surname or even mm, sometimes maybe a nickname. Hmm. Also, I want to make a note here that it was under Nero's rule that both Peter and Paul were martyred. Hmm. Um, so these first five um, emperors were extremely aggressive and they desired total control. The history of the Roman Empire is steeped in the belief that the gods um, made them to be the supreme ruler. So for the emperors, they felt like everyone had to basically bow to what they were saying, uh, to bow to their every um, word. And the Jews experienced hardship and even persecution under these um, young emperors. Um, for example, Tiberius um, actually forbade the Jews from practicing their ancient religion, um, which is Judaism under his regime. Um, and it was Tiberius Claudius, he took it to another level and he expelled the Jews. And I want to look a little bit closely at that point because it's central to what Paul is writing in Romans. But uh, as history tells it, and as some um, uh, historians or, or biblical scholars uh, say, he, Claudius had such a, a, an ego and he did not want anyone speaking about anyone else other than himself. And uh, he was the fourth emperor. He reigned from 41 AD until uh, 54 for 13 years. And so 
as history says, he, he heard the um, Jews speaking about Christos, Christo. And uh, the way they spoke about him, they, they spoke in terms that he felt should only be referred to for himself. Like he's the supreme. And if you go through scripture, Colossians, Ephesians, you can see some of Paul's language there uh, regarding how they viewed Christ. And so um, here we have Claudius saying, no, I won't have this. I'm not going to have anyone um, usurping my authority. And so he decided that he would expel them. Um, and if that sounds familiar, it's because it is, because, you know, we had many years earlier, um, Herod the Great doing the same thing. Herod the Great suffered from that same syndrome um, of wanting to be the greatest person in the, in the universe, so to speak. And, and thus that led him to, to killing all of the children under the age of two trying to kill the, the Christ child. So to prevent anyone from uh, taking his glory, Claudius issued a decree that forced the Jews to leave. And, and he wasn't discriminatory about it. He, it didn't matter if they were Christian Jews or Jews who uh, practiced Judaism. He expelled them all. But um, in 54 AD, he died and the edict was revoked. And so the Jews were able to return to Rome. And so now you have the Jewish Christians returning to Jerusalem and they're encountering the Gentile Christians or sometimes Paul said the Greeks. And the tension could not be any sharper. Uh, it, was, it was hostility. Uh, against the, the both groups had hostility against one another. Uh, they accused one another of not obeying the law or not taking the law uh, seriously or, or doing something that was uh, irreverent about the law. And so this tension was escalating. And it is with this that Paul felt necessary, felt it necessary to write a letter to the Christians in Rome. And so in uh, maybe 57 or 58 AD, Paul um, sets out to, to write this letter. And so now you understand it's, it's only been a few years that the um, Christians had been coming or the, the Jews had been returning back to, to Jerusalem, uh, to Rome. And um, it is through this lens that we can understand why Paul felt it necessary, not just to write to let them know. We know that one of his purposes to, was to inform them that I'm going to come to Rome soon. I, I hope to come to Rome soon. But Paul's strongest intent and his laser focus was on reconciliation. And I submit to you that Paul's purpose for writing Romans was first and foremost for the purpose of reconciliation among the Jewish and Gentile Christians. And so I would also contend that uh, we have many times missed 
the crux of Paul's intent for writing this letter because we sometimes focus on Martin Luther's Reformation and, and that's good. And, and sometimes we focus on spreading the gospel across the world and, and that's good. But we've missed the full intent of Paul's message because we too often we neglect to discuss or to put in the grander narrative that his purpose was for the Jews and Gentiles to reconcile, to come together, to unite. And Paul makes it very clear regarding um, this throughout the book of Romans. But when we look at chapter one, we can see how he lays out the groundwork and then he works that through all of Romans. Um, and so throughout the, the book, he's addressing this conflict. And one thing that I found very fascinating that Paul never takes sides. When you carefully examine the book of Romans, you can see that Paul is addressing the Jews at some points. He's addressing the, the Gentiles, the Greeks at some points, but Paul never takes a side. We don't see Paul, um, even though he considered himself um, you know, of the highest level of, of uh, Roman um, citizenship. And uh, he, he still doesn't take sides, but he lays it out for them to gain the information uh, for themselves. And we see this, for example, in Romans 3, 9. He asks, what then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles or Greeks, are under sin. And so here he's letting them know that the Jews, no matter what they may say, no matter how they may boast, they're not better off than the, than the Greeks because everyone is under sin. Everyone has sinned. Um, and he states it unequivocally when he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we, we see here, and you can look at chapter after chapter, verse after verse, he's presenting them with the issues and letting them know no, no one side, the Jews can't boast, the, the Gentiles can't boast, because we are all, so to speak, in, in the same boat. Um, also, it's important to understand that if we analyze Paul's uh, writing for the entire book, if we analyze it through the lens of a, of, of a complete work, so not just extrapolating chapters or verses out of context, but when we analyze Romans in its full context, we find um, a, a few things that are unique to, to, to this book. And one of them is the fact that Paul had not um, planted a church in Rome. In fact, Paul had not been to Rome. It, uh, one of the reasons that he was writing the letters is to inform them that he wanted to 
come. But Paul had not been to Rome. And so um, he is writing with the hopes of, of, of coming to Rome. Um, the other thing, Rome were, the Roman Christians met in homes. They met in small groups. And so uh, Paul didn't address a church in all of his epistles. He's a, not all, uh, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, he doesn't. But in the others, he's addressing a, a church. And, and, and he's, you know, making it clear that he's speaking to them as a church. And for his letter to the Romans, he addressed the community. And um, I think that is important to recognize because again, he's getting at the theme of reconciliation. So he's not pointing to just one church, you know, in, in one area of the, of the um, uh, country or, or city, but he's making sure that they understand this is to everyone. Um, also, at the time that Paul wrote Romans, he um, had been friends. He had already known um, a person by the name of Priscilla and Aquila, and they were from Rome. So we, you know, sometimes we might think, well, how did Paul know about the Romans? His, his friends were from Rome. And so undoubtedly, I would say that they probably conversed with him, he probably knew from them some of the um, context of what was happening and the tension that existed between the Jews and the, and the Gentiles. But I want to say here that if we only categorize the book of Romans as a masterpiece in expounding on the law, and that it is, or if we only view it as a, a, a reason to go across the waters, then we've missed his fundamental point, and that's reconciliation for um, all Christians, all believers. And Paul wanted them to know that you are you're you're one, you're united because of the blood of Christ, and we all meet at the foot of the cross under the banner of Christ's love. And again, we, we get that throughout the whole book, but he particularly um, hammers it home in chapter 13 when he says to them that they are to owe no one nothing except to love one another. For the, the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So now he's again, addressing this issue of the law. He, through chapter after chapter, he's addressing the issue of the law, but I contend he's doing it because he wants them to reconcile, not just because he wanted to write this grand master, this grand theological masterpiece, but, but he wanted them to unite. He wanted them to, to reconcile. Uh, so, so Paul's main point for these two groups is we have to come together. And I would say that it is only through the gospel of Christ that we can affect any type of change. We cannot have re reformation without reconciliation. So um, I don't think then that it's a stretch to say that chapter one 
and I would I argue the whole book, but chapter one sets forth Paul's thesis of reconciliation. And um, he, he does it quite brilliantly. Uh, he, he does something that uh, unless you understand the background of the Roman Empire, you will miss it. But Paul um, began this letter with the use of a Roman military word, which is evangelion. And uh, we call it in, in Greek is evangelion. In, in the English, we say the good news or the gospel. And um, one of the things that I think he just does it so, so brilliantly is uh, to, to let them know from the very onset that the Romans talk about the uh, gospel of Caesar. And, and so in that day, they spoke about it from the viewpoint that, you know, we're bringing good news when we conquer the world or when we have some type of uh, military victory. But Paul is letting them know, I'm talking about the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. And this supersedes anything that the Roman Empire can do. So I like to say that Paul really opened this letter up. He came out swinging. And, if, and, and, the, and the believers in that time that read his letter understood exactly what he was saying. Um, and so he begins with a direct attack on the Roman Empire. According to Sylvia um, C. Kismat, she states in her book, Romans Disarmed, she says that Paul purposely used words like slave, gospel, Lord, debt, salvation, justice, and faith, because these are words that the Roman Empire used. And so Paul is basically throwing their words back at them, but letting them know it's for a different use. And so the, the commonly used words uh, for the Roman Empire now becomes weapons that the Christian church in Rome can use and it gives them hope. So they were commonly used in the powers that be uh, use them to perhaps keep the Roman Christian under constant condemnation. And one of the most famous uh, verses in, in all of, of Romans is, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And so Paul just uh, systematically tackles all of the Roman Empire's um, devices and the things that they were using to try to keep the Roman citizen um, in subservient, uh, in a subservient state. Uh, and so in chapter one, we, we see that he comes out with the word gospel. And uh, I just love the way that in a short span, Paul uses this word five times. Um, and so it, it, it becomes clear that he's making a point here. It's no coincidence 
that in this short span, he uses the word five times. In verse one, he states that he is set apart for the gospel. In verse nine, he says that he's serving in the spirit of the gospel of God's son, Jesus Christ. In verse 15, he told the, the, the Romans that he was eager to preach the gospel. And then in verse 16, the, the, the very famous verse, he says that um, he is not ashamed of the gospel. And so this is a direct attack on the word gospel that uh, the Roman empire uses. They used it to signify that they had won a victory. They used it to signify that Caesar was the main power, that Caesar was the supreme person. And now Paul is saying, no, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And this is how we come about with reconciliation. Um, and so I contend here that this is brilliant. The way that Paul is um, step by step in just the first few uh, paragraphs of his letter attacking the Roman Empire and all that they stand for. Um, and I heard Clark mention that he's going to be speaking on, uh, on, on, on politics uh, in, in the coming weeks. I'd, I'd love to, to hear that talk, but, but I, I just wanna stop here and just make a note that sometimes we, we have a tendency, tendency to say that, um, oh, we have to keep politics out of the, the pulpit or um, you, can't, you can't talk about politics. But I would submit to you that if you look at Genesis through Revelation, there are very few books that do not evoke the political atmosphere of that day. You can look at um, books even like Esther that seem really um, um, perhaps uh, maybe like it's easy, it's, it's, it's not going to attack anything, but that's a strong book coming against, that's a book coming strongly against the political um, forces of, of that day. Uh, and, and, and there are many other books that you can look at. And so uh, the book of Romans is a book that was written in the context of the political um, environment and atmosphere of that day. And so I think sometimes we have to be careful not to throw the baby out with the, not to throw the um, baby out with the bathwater because when we do, sometimes we miss significant information that uh, the word of God is, is trying to teach us. So um, this, the book of Romans is an extremely, um, uh, in the context of what Paul was saying, extremely political. Um, so uh, th th this is um, also um, something that I think is important to remember with the word gospel is that when they, whenever the Roman empire had some type of military victory, the people would run through the streets and they would literally yell uh, the, what we would call the gospel of Caesar or the um, 
uh, Evaglion of Caesar. And so basically they were declaring Caesar is the, um, is the supreme. Um, so I just think that it's important for us to look at this book, look at um, uh, what Paul is saying through the lens of how he used the word gospel. Um, so let's move on now to um, talk a little bit about the different examples that we see here as he as he goes through the um, um, book. So when he um, speaks to that, the other thing that I think we have to note for the book of Romans is that when Paul is speaking to the Jews and the Gentiles, he's letting them know that the gospel is for all. It's important to note that in the book of Romans, Paul uses the word all some 52 times. And I think he uses the word everyone about seven times. And so that is significant because what it's saying is uh, this is not just for a particular group. This is for everyone. If you believe, then this is for you. And so he says um, in one place to all who are the beloved in Rome, called as saints. In, in another place, he talks about the wrath of God. And he says, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Um, he uh, talks about everyone being able to receive the, the gospel of Christ is for everyone who believes. And um, I think that it's important to understand that Paul does not say, um, he says to the Jew first and then to the Greek, but here he's not saying it as though um, they have some upper hand. He's just saying because that's who God presented it to first, but it's to everyone. And so again, he's letting them know we don't have, as Jews, we don't have a special, um, uh, uh, we, we don't have a special claim on the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. Um, so um, I believe that if we are to be effective in missions, and so we look at Paul's gospel, and, and my thesis is that if we take Paul's approach as an example, as a model for reconciliation, then we can look at it through the lens of missions. And to be effective in missions, we must work as a church united. And I think it's important that we stop labeling black church, white church, because that only intensifies the uh, disagreements that we might have. Now, I'm not saying that we don't, there aren't, you know, cultural differences and, and that um, we, we are become colorblind or no, because God made color. But what I am saying is that as the church, the first thing we should look at is the, the, the church united, not I'm a black Christian or a white Christian. And so this is one of the things that I think has um, really hindered the American uh, church. And the more we move forward, the more we move into um, 
um, what we would call uh, the, the end time. If we don't come together, then we hinder our opportunity to be effective on the global uh, mission stage. And we don't want to, um, we, we don't want to thwart our efforts because we have been, till now, we've been extremely, um, extremely uh, significant in the missions world. But, but I, I, I'm contending that black and white Christians, if we begin to look at what Paul is setting forth as an example, and if we take this as an example, then I think that we can um, come together and eliminate some of the um, uh, tensions that exist between black and, and, and white Christians. Um, and so as I talked about the, the Greek word and the English word, um, evangelion, the Greek, good news, the, the gospel, and the importance of understanding why Paul used this throughout his um, uh, first chapter. Um, and so Pauline reconciliatory theology as it relates to the 21st um, century mission movement is um, that, and this is Lisa's paraphrasing of, of Paul's um, masterful work in, in Romans, but that we truly come together as um, a body of Christ. Paul, I, I believe, worked so well with explaining the law to them because he wanted them to understand the reconciliation piece of it. He wanted them not to get hung up on arguing over the various aspects of the law that they were arguing over, but look beyond that to what Christ has done and what Christ has done for all. Um, so if we are to be effective in evangelizing, we have to have a comprehension and an understanding of Romans as a guide for <coughs> reconciliation. And um, I, I believe that it would be groundbreaking if, if Christian universities were to begin to look at um, Romans through this lens and begin to teach it from a missional viewpoint that if I am not reconciled with my brothers and sisters here in these United States, it's impossible for me to be effective going across the waters. Um, and, and so this is um, something that I think as a body of Christ, we have to, it is imperative that we begin to take what I call a second look at the book of Romans. As I mentioned earlier, we look at it often through the lens of um, Martin Luther and, and through the lens of um, mission as far as going across the waters, but let's take a second look at it and look at it through the reconciliatory theology that Paul is putting forth. Um, and I think that we would do ourselves a great, great, um, uh, serve a, a great service to to the mission field and to the um, mission movement at large. Um, our, at this point, we can take questions and uh, comments. I think you might have answered it, but I want to ask you <coughs> about your thesis 
for this premise. Um, I had never heard the book of Romans um, as the theme, overarching theme as reconciliation. So while I'm listening, I can agree in the sense that I know the grand narrative from Genesis to Revelation is the theme is reconciliation, restoration, redemption. So I can get that uh, and grace and as if that was the theme, but now what you're, it's making sense. I'm just thinking through scriptures that, you know, are in the scriptures in the book of Romans that that theme of reconciliation would make sense. But if you had a, a thesis like a scripture would chapter one, nine, verse nine be the thesis for your, this, this um, groundbreaking. Yeah, I I would say that there are probably, um, I don't know if I could say that there's just one verse. I would say that the first half of chapter one or, or the first two thirds of chapter one would be the thesis um, of the reconciliation as his main um, goal for the whole book. And the reason I say that is because once you get to verse, um, I guess, 18, 19, he starts into um, examples about various things. And, and then we know in chapter three, he, you know, really delves into um, some of the things of, of the law. And then in four, he gets into more details. So I would say that the first um, two thirds is his um, thesis for reconciliation, but his masterful explanation of the law is because he's explaining it to them so that they can understand this is what the law is. This is what the law can and cannot do. But the main goal for you is reconciliation. So he, he's not, uh, I don't believe that he was saying it as I'm putting forth this um, um, masterful theological piece on the law, but more that I want you to reconcile and I'm using the law as the example to show you what to do, what not to do, and, and then how you come about in reconciliation. And, and that Christ is the supreme. Okay, yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, the same way in the book of Romans, a lot of people look at that as a this like theological meticulous outlay of the redemption when people usually don't look at it in the missiological term um, of, of, you know, the grand narrative that God came to, you know, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And God's mm -hmm. mission, the Missio Dei, is always reconciliation. Mm -hmm. But thank you so much for, for that great lecture. Does anyone else have a, a question? You know, I would add to that, by the way, uh, Lisa, you know, the earliest book was Galatians. Uh, by Paul, and that was, it dealt with law and grace, but his primary issue in it was reconciliation, trying to get Peter to know not to live like a Gentile with the Gentiles and a Jew with the Jews, yeah. but that they were to share a common fellowship. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you see it in one of his last letters with Philemon, 
And so mm -hmm. uh, to see that reconciliation is a overarching theme for him as it relates to the law, I, I'm fully convinced of that. So I think that was really excellent. Uh, Elise, you have a question? Yes, let me, I'll turn on my video. I was um, making and eating dinner while you were talking, but I was listening and I am so grateful um, to just hear your thoughts and your wisdom on this. Thank you for um, your lecture. Uh, I was just thinking, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Mine are still swirling in my mind. So we'll see if this actually lands as a cohesive question, but um, when ministering, ministering, when being a missionary in a cross-cultural context, especially when there are histories of um, oppression that has been, you know, like the result of, of culture or a, a narrative that is of the world that has been tied to religion or Christianity as it's mm. been like lived out in a place um, and Christianity has been used uh, in, in maybe more negative ways. Like I'm thinking of indigenous cultures um, here in, I'm in Seattle in the US, but across uh, North America. I'm curious um, when, when that's the context <laughs> that you are in kind of a cross missional setting, um, what does it look like to allow space for different cultural expression of Christianity within this, you know, common understanding or unity in Christ? Uh, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, and I and the, the thank you for that question, Elise. And the the first thing that I would say is that. Um, and this was actually, I heard this on a webinar that my organization did a, a couple of weeks ago, um, but unity doesn't uh, necessarily mean uniformity. And, and so I think as believers, um, we sometimes have <clears throat> angst when it seems that everyone is not uniformed. And so we say, ah, we're, we're not um, unified. But, but if one culture does um, church one way and another culture does church another way, it, it doesn't mean that they're any less Christian. Um, and for an example, in um, Russia, the, the churches that I attended, very often they had service from, we might start at, at 10 in the morning and we go until three or four in the afternoon. And, and, and for me being an American Christian, even in my context of being, uh, uh, you know, growing up in a black church that we did tend to go along with service, that was even a stretch for me. But um, if we were to tell them, oh no, you can't do service that long because, you know, then that, and that's a simple example, but it's like, you know, one culture may be different than another culture. Um, and we have to be careful not to assign um, uh, as, the, as the Jews and the Gentiles were doing to one another, not to assign uh, blame or not to assign uh, like, oh, you can't do this because this isn't what um, the, the law was saying. 
uh, we have to be careful not to do that. Uh, and, and so I think we have to, as missionaries, particularly as missionaries, we, we have to be careful to allow the culture to operate in their culture. And, and um, those of us who have been missionaries, we know that one of the biggest problems we have is we want to superimpose the American or Western culture on whatever culture we're going to. And when they don't do things in the American way or in the Western way, we say, nope, they're, they're not believers. They, they don't have it. And so uh, I, I just think that if I've answered your question, that's, that's you know, one of the things that I think we, be, we should be aware of. And, um, and I think that's how it kind of looks sometimes if you're talking, um, what can it look like to operate in, 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 in a culture that is different from ours? I, I, when I was in Russia, um, as they say, when a Rome do as the Romans, um, when I was in Russia, I, I followed what um, they did. So I sat in church for four or five, six hours, and they had several speakers, not just one, not just one main speaker. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's uh, kind of how I see it. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I think that it's, it's just hitting me how much like, uh, awareness of yourself and your own culture you have to have and the awareness of another culture that you have to have and yeah, yeah. and that's another that's another lecture altogether yeah. <laughs> about, um you know the awareness and the culture shock and the stages of culture shock because as a missionary we go into a different culture and there are the various stages that you go through and if you're not self-aware if you're not aware of those stages you find yourself making a lot of mistakes and then doing things that will come back to um, perhaps haunt you or even make it maybe not even possible to do missions in that particular environment. Interesting. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And, and to, to further comment on Elisa's question, I would say that Paul, part of what Paul was trying to help them to understand is that um, we, we, we don't have to, well, he looked at it from the law, but, you know, we're not um, saying beating someone over the head saying, oh, you have to do it uh, this way. And, and obviously we know that the law doesn't say. Um, so I think that as American Christians, we have to be careful of that. Does anyone have, does anyone have a question? Or a comment. <laughs> <laughs> or a comment, yes. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I think that the way you started out was, I think it's like really, really, really important, you know, and I think what the it's what's been happening in the church for well, three or four decades, I guess, maybe a little more, you know, was, was starting to look at the, read the Bible in its historical context and getting away from the idea of that it's it, like it was written for us specifically, you know, within within our own, you know, social context, you know, we're Canadian, you know, but in the American context, pretty much same thing, and uh, and I think that is just really, really, really important, and uh, I mean, there's just so many things to be learned from that, and you can go back to the Gospels and where, you know, the whole reconciliation thing is kind of interesting with the Gospels because Jesus, you know, is saying he's he's coming to bring division. 
but it's it's a political division. It's not an in-church division, you mm. know. So, um, and I think a lot of these things where we get divided, you know, like you you brought up about different types of service and whatnot, um, and you know, or, or even our you know some of our Christian beliefs, you know, where we make theology as being the important thing rather than actually you know living the, the life that we're called to you know because we can differ on on the, theology and still have christ within us working working through us and uh, it's, it's it's interesting because he, he when jesus says he's bringing division like you know from looking in its context he's saying the division is going to be between you know his way of revolution he was a revolutionary and his way of revolution was a nonviolent revolution, as opposed to the violent revolution that was mm-hmm. primarily the thinking of, you know, within his culture. And uh, but then, and then the church winds up right away with having, you know, I'm Anglican, <laughs> you know, the division that we went through a few years ago. And you know, but right away you had schism right in the very early church, you know, between like you know you talked about all the time. It's just. It was really, really interesting. It was really well done. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you. Uh, I think there's a question from Arlene. Arlene. Yes, Arlene. Yes, hi, Lisa. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, Stone Mountain, Georgia. Thanks but for I staying thoroughly, up this week. <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed your presentation. But of course, the, 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 the gnawing question in the back of my mind is in the United States is how to get past the racial divide. Mm-hmm. Because the comparison of, of Jews and Gentile in the Bible is still applicable to here. We know we're all Christian, but yet still so many people, even as Christians, tend to take that racial issue into, you know, into Christianity. And I think some of us are more open to worshiping together, but I don't see some of, you know, some of the... Uh, and I will say mostly, I feel like it's pretty much on the Caucasian side where they're not accepting uh, African-Americans, for example, being on the same level. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Very good question. Um, and the, the way that I would answer is first, I would say that in America, we have um, a complex issue. We, we, we've got a, is um, just, you know, beyond anything I've seen and even other in other cultures in, in mm-hmm. my and so with our complexity we cannot be afraid to first look at why there's the complexity why, why there's the uh, difficult um, uh, situation of bringing white and Christians together I would say that one of the things we have to understand how um, white theology and black theology, traditional black theology evolved. That's one of the things I think that we have to look at. And, and someone just mentioned theology is, you know, yes, we know that it's not um, uh, something that we get hung up on, but it is our theology that informs us. And so when we very often, whether we accept it or not, when we go to scripture, we very often superimpose our cultural values, our societal values, and our, theo- and our theological values onto the scripture. So it's important to understand biblical theology. 
But what happens is with, with white and black theology, if we were to delve into why they came about or how they came about, I, I think that we could start getting to, to, to some of the um, answers of reconciliation in our nation. Um, and so the next thing I would say is that looking at that history, we, we can't be afraid the history. We, we can't be afraid to delve into um, the, the hard work of understanding how the white evangelicals developed as they did and how Black Christians developed as they did through uh, the Black church and, and the Black theology. Um, if, if we can understand that aspect, and let me make a side note here, theology is us, you know, um, ascertaining to understand God. So it's not saying this is, this is God, this is man's um, um, uh, trying to basically say, who is God? What, what, you know, what is he? And uh, so with that, that's, that's why we have to, you know, be careful to look at, okay, what is black, what is white theology? But having said that, once we get to that point, then I think we can start with the work of reconciliation. But if we're afraid, if we're afraid to look at history and to look at the history in these United States um, of the formation of white evangelicalism, then I think that that's going to do us a disservice. Um, and this is not to um, shame or to lay blame or anything like that. It's just saying, I need to look and see what it is so that I can understand how we come to this. And, and so if you understand that for years and years, for centuries in this nation, um, part of white theology has been that um, there's a black inferiority even coming to the scripture. So that's one thing that we really have to tackle. We can't be afraid to do it. Um, in Black theology, we, we have to be uh, um, bold enough to say some of this is not biblical. Well, some of the white evangelical theology is not biblical theology, but, but we, as Black Christians, we say, yeah, some of this is not biblical theology. We can't hold on to, to, to this aspect of it. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to start there. Um, I'm sure other folks may have another place where they might want to start, but but that's where I'd like at, at that point. Looking back so that we can look forward. Um, Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think Linda uh, wanted to make a comment. Linda? I just wanted to make a comment. Thank you, um, Arlene, for that question. Uh, Lisa, I was thinking, where do we start? Going back to the beginning, back to Genesis, and we were made in the Imago Dei. If we as believers in Christ begin to look at our brothers and sisters as made in the Imago Dei and get rid of this race is a man-made ideology, and we use that race as a divisive, it's a division, but it's man-made. What is real is that we were made male and female. And what I find so ironic is that in our society, the diabolical schemes are to accept the race, which is man-made, and throw away what God has said, he made male and female. So we're changing the truth of God into a lie. 
which is what Paul said in Romans 1. That's where we begin, looking at our brothers and sisters in the Imago Dei. Let's go back to the scripture for the beginning. And as a historian, I'm all for the historical piece. But I think we start with, let's begin as brothers and sisters and look at each other in the Imago Dei. We're all made in the image of God. We're all equal. There's no the male nor female, Jew yeah. nor Greek, by nor free, we're all one in Christ. Well, well said, Linda, and I, and I also think that um, I agree 100%. And I, and I think that that's part of what Paul was telling them. You, you cannot look at yourself as Greek, as Jew. And when we say, you know, male, female, um, th 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 he's saying there not about the sexuality, about we're one as valued as spirit. That's what we are. And we're, we're in, the, in the image of uh, God. So, yeah, well said. I, I think that Arlene's question is, is, is um, I mean, it's, there's a lot of complexities and there's a lot of shades that we can um, have to it. But I think that is it, it's imperative that we begin the, the discussion. Um, I think that the American church is lacking because of this division. And I, one, I believe 100% wholeheartedly that if the church in America, particularly the black and white church were to come together, there would be a, a revival the likes of which we've never seen. Um, and, and unless and until that happens, I think we're going to be stagnant in a sense. Will God's work continue? Yes, but that's why other nations are raising up and, and he's raising a work, but it's, it's not necessarily happening on these shores, but that's up to us if we want to um, make that difference. That's excellent. Uh, Lawanda. Yes, thank you, Elisa, wonderful, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Um, I don't really have a question, but I do have a comment that is filled with action. Um, as you were doing your teaching and just unveiling this, my husband and I have an opportunity to go into different ministries and talk with them about cultural humility. This really gave extra lens to, you know, deep, dig deeper, deeper, deeper. Um, and so I just want to thank you for this opportunity. It was wonderful, wonderful. By way of thanks, thanks for staying up late. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. Anyone else? No, I've got I've got something. Okay, we have a question from Donna here. Yeah, Thank you, Lisa. I, I would love to hear more of, about the history of where you know we think the divide came in terms of the theology. Um and also going forward, um, you know, you laid out you laid out in the Book of Romans sort of the the game plan, so to speak. Um, but you know, how do we get that implemented, and how does that how does that divide begin to heal so that that revival, as you're talking about, sort of takes place? Um, I won't go into much details, only because much of it will come from a paper that's about to be published. So. <laughs> and so I can't give a lot of details, but I, I will say, and, and that's in my head right now, as far as the historical aspect, but, but from the inception of our nation, uh, we basically um, 
formed white evangelical theology around the notion that um, white is superior. Um, and without, I, I mean, I, I, I can delve a little bit deeper, but um, once my paper once my paper is published, I'd be happy to to, Sorry, delve, to, the do, the, to do the deep dive. But um, but that's my that's my contention that um, the way that um, white evangelical theology was formed, um, it 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 left for uh, a, a lot of division and. Um, it doesn't matter. A friend was challenging me several weeks ago, and he said, well, Lisa, look at, you know, you have to look at the different uh, denominations. But even when you look at all of the denominations, um, they come up wanting. The Methodist denomination, I would say, perhaps comes close to trying to make some type of amends. Um, but then you have the situation with Richard Allen, who began the African um, uh, Methodist Episcopal Church because he was, because the Blacks uh, and those who were enslaved were being discriminated against. Mm -hmm. And so this was the first Black independent denomination in our country. And it wasn't started just because they said, oh, you know, let's start this and have people coming together. It was started out of necessity because the white Methodists were telling the black Methodists, you can't come in and worship here. Or if you come, you have to sit in the back or you have to sit in the balcony or, or you cannot preach to, to the white congregants. You can only preach to the black congregants. So um, those type of things um, are the, the things in our history that we really have to deal with. When you look at the start of Black denominations, by and large, they were started because we could not worship with white um, uh, believers. And, and what's very interesting is that if you look at... Um, and Linda is the historian, but but if I recall correctly, when you look at, I wanna say the 1700s, maybe late 1600s, blacks and whites were worshiping together, hmm. but um, the sin of slavery just hmm. destroyed so many things. And, and then the sin of superiority. So mm -hmm. um, uh, if we tackle that here in these United States, I, I think we can start getting somewhere and not feeling um, like like we're being attacked. So white Christians, it, it you know, it's it's I can't say it. I'm I'm not white, but it, it's it's if we start feeling like we're oh they're making me feel guilty. No, it's not about feeling guilt or anything. It's just about righting the wrong and acknowledging, repenting, lamenting, and moving forward and changing. And, and so that's why I say reformation cannot come before um, uh, reconciliation. The reformation is the change, but the reconciliation is the coming, coming together. Um, and so your second part of your question, I think, is once we do that hard work, and it can be uh, both, and it can be simultaneously, um, we, we begin to say, hey, I'm a white Christian, but I'm going to go into the black church, not as an experiment, not as a, you know, getting people, but because I literally want to just worship with my black brothers and sisters. And, and we start coming together. I, 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 I'm thinking right now of um, 
Carlton Tilson, who started, uh, uh, who, who was a part of a church where back in the 70s, out of uh, Oral Roberts was uh, the, the university, and, and some of you may, may know him, but um, he's no longer in the Christian denomination, I don't think. But back then, he started um, a church that was unique for its time. It was one of the um, first uh, multi-ethnic churches or multi-racial churches in the states that really just grew by leaps and bounds. And uh, they had white and black leadership. And so I think if we can somehow recapture what was happening there, we've got some churches across America that are, by, that are multi-racial, uh, but um, by and large, what you might see is a church that has all white leadership and you've got black members or a church with all black leadership and you've got white members. To be truly multi-racial uh, and to be truly say we're going to come together and and you know put away some of these differences, it has to start at leadership. So, um, like I said, there are a lot of levels to this. There are a lot of um, things, but but if one person takes on one issue, another takes on another issue, I think we can, um, as a friend of mine said, eat the elephant bite by bite. So. <laughs> Right now. Uh, okay, before, hold on, Irving. Um, Julia has uh, something she wants to add to that. Um, I'm just looking at uh, Romans chapter 12, and I'm wondering if you could comment on that in relation to what you just were talking about in the church. Because um, looking at it, it's talking about uh, offering your body as a living sacrifice and, um, and not thinking of yourself as more highly than you ought. And then it goes into the love section too. Um, um, yeah, not um, being patient um, in affliction and uh, blessing those who persecute you and uh, not being proud, being willing to associate with whoever. And then it talks about um, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Um, and yeah, just thinking of that whole chapter in Romans 12, I'm sure you know the book better than I do. If you could comment. Well, I, don't, I don't know about that. Chapter. <laughs> yeah, any any thoughts on that particular chapter in relation to your, your talk tonight? Yeah, yeah. I think that um, there, Paul is giving what I call the, the practical application. So He's, you know, unpacking the, the, the law and, and explaining it to them in relation to why they need to, to reconcile. And then you get to chapters um, maybe, maybe 11, 12, 13, but he begins to talk about practical things. And so I look at that as, as Paul's practical advice to them. Um, with with all of the issues that were going on, he's letting them know, you know, not to single out for this particular reason, or not to not to separate yourselves from your brothers and sisters for this reason, or to be patient, to be to be kind, to um, give leeway, and and so that's that's how I look at that that chapter as um, the practicality of what he said before you know, he talked about the law, but now he's giving us some really some things to some, something we can sink our teeth into. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Irving? Earlier this week, the BBC had uh, uh, an interview which lasted an hour with uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu, and uh, it can be found on their website. And I would just like to recommend it to people to go to the BBC website and look up Bishop Tutu. It was an interview from 2004, and it was really excellent. Thank you. Thank you for that, Irving, because um, he was, and I haven't studied him in depth, but <coughs> His whole premise was about, um, you know, forgiveness, and and um, and I think that that he would be someone that we could very well learn a lot from. Um, yeah, no, he was a great person. I think Carla. I just wanted to mention this uh, Andrew Ross's book about David Livingston, which is it reminded me because you gave a historical background, and I think that's very important because he was in Africa, as you know, in an area where I did research. <laughs> and there he, um, toward the end um, of his stay there, uh, Darwin's book came out. And he noticed that um, 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 the head of came over, flailing his book around, it was so important and all the rest. And he said, you know, how can this be? Because it's not just that they're making the racial differences, but now they're also creating a hierarchy. And of course, David Livingston was eternally grateful because as you probably know his story, uh, he was carried back to the, the ship that, that would take him home uh, by these absolutely loyal mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, and various other people that were there. Yeah, that's a great, great example. Great example. Great. Does anyone else have a question? Uh, Linda, you have something you'd like to say? My husband does. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so yes, yeah, uh, other comments that were made earlier. And the one question, uh, one question was where, in essence, where does the different theologies uh, arise, the white theology, black theology? I personally think of that in my mind as you go back. And as my wife said, as Linda said, the Mago Day, that's the beginning. But Proverbs 21, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. And I think that ideology and that thought process that every man is right in his own eyes is how we as humanness not not we're not talking about theology we're just talking about humanness we as humankind can tend to look at our thoughts and our beliefs as right so that's when you start to have schisms in the church because one person thinks that i have a, a better understanding of the word or the scriptures. And that's when it, we start to build on our own thoughts and ideologies because our own thoughts are right in our eyes. And I think that's what Paul was addressing the, the Jews with the law basis felt that that was the better way. Um, then with the Gentiles and the grace well, were under grace. And he was in essence saying, Everyone thinks they're right, but really, it's really neither one of you are right. It, it's, it goes back to, to the cross and to Christ as far as currently within this nation. And with you know, we talk about within the nation and the two theologies, but then it's been mentioned 
the Western theology and missions, how the West, Western theology going to the other nations, it's again that whole basis of humanity who we tend to look at ourselves as more than. And that's where we have to stop looking at, at ourselves as more than and in humble uh, cultural humility uh, <laughs> but the others there are uh, there's there's one true gospel there's one way to Christ or, or to but it's not necessarily uh, the way I get there may look a little different it, it in in so many in so many words do we have another question uh, Irving, do you have another question? Paula does. <laughs> no, I just wanted to comment. I I think this presentation from Matthew's perspective is very important because Paul, of course, works with the origins. I mean, Jew and Christian should be together. Now he has to go to Rome and bring them together. But then uses his life there. That political force was too big. So here's the church fighting among itself. He goes in there and he's mm -hmm. killed. Mm -hmm. um, I gave a talk last week, and this is a very real analogy. Yeah, and and you know, the more I study, Paul has always been my my favorite of the biblical um, characters, and and the more I delve into Romans and, and see all of the things that he was coming up against, the more it's almost like, wow, what if? And, and this is only Lisa's, um, you know, just me surmising what if, but what if Paul had gone to Rome and had not been in prison and had had an opportunity to interact with the Roman church? Um, you know, I, my thing is that maybe there would be Romans too, because in his interaction, he probably would have had more things that he, he could have said, but it's, it's like, wow, he gets there. He had longed to go there. He gets there only to be in prison. And then he doesn't, um, he, he really doesn't get to interact with the church. And we know that he loses his life. So uh, for me, it's like I, my mind starts wandering down the page of, wow, what if, um, but, but the, the book that, that, that the Holy Spirit, you know, worked through him to, to write is just masterful. Romans is, is just masterful. Right. Anyone else? Um, Clark, real quick. I don't know if you saw in the chat, but I forget who you said um, in the library there with you had the question about resources on learning about the history of the white church. Yes, Donna. Um, Donna, I, I was just gonna say, I put a couple of books that have been helpful for me as a white Christian on this journey, <laughs> um, just in case that and, is helpful at all, yeah. And also Clark, I can send you a list. I've got an extensive list of, um, of uh, the historical look of, um, how white evangelicalism came about, um, how the black denominations came about, uh, how the, the church, I've, I've, I've got like more books than we can. I think that would be a wonderful like, list if so you I'll could send, send that to me people. and I will send it out to anyone who asks me okay. of it. And which are the ones that- uh, But Elise mentioned Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise. Yes, The Color of Compromise, I highly recommend. Yeah, and Jamar um, is great. 
Yeah, Jamar is a, an amazing um, theologian and scholar. Um, also, Esau McCulley, his book, Reading While Black, mm. I would recommend that. Um, it's written in more of a, even though he's a scholar, but he writes it in a very simple way so that anyone can read it. And I, I think that was his, his purpose. But Reading While Black, um, Esau McCulley is, is a great read. Um, another great read, and it's a tough one, but um, White Too Long by Robert P. Jones. I mm. would recommend that to any um, Black or white Christian, but evangelical Christians. It gives really a very clear understanding of where the uh, superiority <gasps> attitude um, um, comes from and how that evolves. Um, but there are many, there, there are a plethora of, of, of books. Um, Romans Disarmed. Uh, by Sylvia C. Kismat. That's that's a great one, and it mm. discusses Romans from a viewpoint that very few people look at it uh, from the Roman Empire and and how in that context and setting, that's how Paul um, writes the writes the book. So, um, yeah, th th there's a, a plethora of um, resources I can. I can send you that I think would be very helpful. Yeah, please do. And thank you, Lawanda, for putting some of that up. Uh, yeah, you know, it's great. It, it, I mean, I loved your analysis and I, I am very taken with the, the reading of Romans through, through that reconciliation lens, you know, uh, to say that our ultimate identity is in Christ, you know, in the Messiah, mm -hmm. that our identity is not in the law, not in grace, but in the Messiah. He's the one that makes us one people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when I, I found it really fascinating and intriguing that you were talking about how Paul used the political language of the day in order to announce the mm -hmm. theology mm -hmm. of the kingdom of God, mm -hmm. uh, because they saw unity because Rome was quite a very pluralistic society, mm -hmm. but it was all under the empire and it was the Caesar who held it all together. It was the political powers that be that held it together. That's what made someone uh, alike, even though there was uh, or were atrocious or atrocities against people, there was hierarchies. <coughs> uh, it was a very elite, a very aristocratic society. And the church, Paul's message was able to transform I should say the gospel was able to transform uh, that society by bringing prostitutes and slaves and uh, people that were foolish in the eyes of the world. And it ended up becoming a radical voice, a radical alternative community uh, that was very small, like a mustard seed, but challenged the powers that be. And, and it changed the course of history. And of course, God's hand was in that, but God's hand was in that through the weak, through the humble, through the despised. Uh, and but when I look at America, taking that and applying it to America, uh, I, I see that sometimes we want to see unity, you know, under the economy or <laughs> under the democracy. And and there are uh, um racial discrimination within the laws, within the system, within the structures. Uh, but the church has a real opportunity to take up the mantle of living into the full gospel in order to challenge that, even if they are but a mustard seed. Um, and so 
Um, I'm just, I'm just reflecting on what you said and what I'm taking away from it. And uh, I really appreciate it. My question um, is you, you lived cross-culturally, uh, you know, in Russia and also it looks like the Middle East. How has that shaped the way that you view yourself as a Christian coming back into the U.S. and desiring reconciliation? Yeah. Wow, that's an excellent question, uh, Clark. Um, it was, it's, I've been back in the United States for six years now. And I was telling, um, I think I was telling my twin sister and my brother that I, I, I feel like I'm just now getting my footing. Um, it took me a while to get adjusted to the um, American culture again. For the first few years when I was back, I literally felt like I was a person without a home. Um, I, I, I felt that I understood Russian culture enough to, to operate in that in an in a, in a, um, effective, productive way. Um, didn't learn the Middle Eastern culture as well, just because it was a short time. <clears throat> I was only in the Middle East for five years. I spent 15 years as a missionary to Russia. So the, 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 the time that I spent in Russia, I literally feel like I had gotten to the um, stage four of, of culture shock, and that's assimilation when you uh, begin to just do the things that that country uh, where you are, you begin to do things as they do. Um, so when I came back to the United States, I was I was like kind of confused <laughs> um, because I, I couldn't operate as I did in Russia, couldn't operate as I did in, in, in the Middle East. And it felt weird and uncomfortable to operate as an American and I'm American. So that, um, that was a difficult transition. And the longer that you are out of the United States, the more that happens. But as far as how I view things, um, it, it drastically changed my um, theological outlook. Um, it, it changed my sociological outlook. Um, it, it changed my uh, psychological outlook. But but my theological um, outlook just was totally um, changed because I was seeing people who didn't have what we have in America. I was seeing people who um, came to God and loved him uh, and, and, and was, they were excited about him. Uh, and it didn't depend on, on what they had or what they didn't have. And the way that they view scripture is quite different than the way we view scripture. So then I began to take on um, some of those things. And so, um, yeah, my, I, I might be a, a theological mutt because I, um, I, I, I probably have a lot of the Russian um, perspective in me. Um, I've got the American white and black perspective um, not you know so much the Middle Eastern, but maybe a tad of that. So when I come to scripture, I'm always looking at it from a different angle than um, probably many Americans might look at it, just because of all of the things that I'm, I'm I was exposed to. So um, I'm grateful for that, but it was in some ways a difficult um, reentry process. 
uh, when, when because of the length of time I had been outside of the United States and it definitely changed, it definitely changed me, changed my outlook, my perspective. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for that. Is there anyone else who has uh, any questions or comments? Okay, I'm gonna ask you one more question. Whoops. I didn't mean to remove your spotlight. I mean to spotlight you. Um, okay, so this is a little bit more. So what do you think about, uh, how do I ask this? I don't know how to ask this, okay? So how, how do you think we should think about uh, the use of critical race theory or racial bias training in terms of how we relate it to the gospel? in service of uniting the church or should like what do you think uh that are you are you uh intending to ignite a fire <laughs> <laughs> i'm not trying to i'm not trying to cause controversy i, I would just like um, because you know at labrie we have diverse yeah. conversations uh -huh. and we're yeah i love it no actually i love it so. i love it i, I okay. love it that uh, that you just went all the way there, um, <laughs> and uh, and it's uh, uh, a question that I actually I, I talked to my twin sister. If you all didn't realize, Linda is my twin sister. You probably have realized it by now that at least we're sisters. But she's my twin sister. But earlier this week, I told her. I, I said, I wonder if I'm going to get that question. And uh, as she said, you probably should be prepared to to answer it. Um, but as I, the more I study critical race theory on both sides, I've come away with the um, understanding that I think it's being um, misconstrued. And what I mean by that is when we talk about anything as being critical, we're just talking about how we're analyzing it. So we talk about critical thinking. No one gets upset and says we shouldn't think critically. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, when you go into the think tanks and you go to the universities and you, and you discuss various things, um, we delve into it in a, in a, in a critical way. And so um, the, the thing that um, I think is unfortunate is that for some reason, uh, someone got a hold of critical race theory and just wanted to dismantle um, the whole concept without even thinking how, and I want to measure my words here, but it's, it's sort of a ridiculousness to that because why wouldn't we think critically about race? Um, why wouldn't we think critically about where our nation is as far as our racial history with black and white? And it doesn't mean that we're throwing out um, uh, history or it doesn't mean that we're only focusing on one aspect but what it means is that we have to look at the way that our nation was formed the way that our nation uh, came to be and if we're real honest with ourselves we understand that um, we as a nation didn't do things um, in a Christian way um, and you know it doesn't matter how you slice and dice and spin 
um, we, we just didn't do things in a Christian way. And so if we say we can't look at um, race and race relations critically, then it seems that we don't want to discuss that part of our history. And so I think it's very unfortunate that um, some, you know, and I, and I don't like using these labels for um, uh, racism because I don't think it's a right or left liberal or conservative situation. Racism is racism. It is not about right or left liberal conservatism, but I think it's unfortunate if we don't look at um, race critically. And if we don't look at the history that we have dealing with racism, dealing with how um, our nation was formed, then we as a nation will not be able to move forward. We as a nation will not be able to um, continue the liberties that we have. If we say that we're a democracy and we keep whomever, whatever group we choose um, to keep down or to hold down, we cease to be a democracy. And so we shouldn't be afraid to, to tackle that. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about the history um, in a critical way. We shouldn't be afraid to um, uh, think about it from all from all aspects, and it's not it's not a bad thing. It's not you know, and we all know if if I'm to be honest, we know that um, a large swath of the white evangelical um, um, population thinks that this is just horrific. A large swath of Black Christians think, yeah, this is this is a good thing. So. I think we've just got to be honest with ourselves and start coming together and, and looking at things as they are and, and not just taking a word and, and just going crazy with it. Um, because this phrase has been around for, for a long time. It, it just didn't pop up in, in the last couple of years. Critical race theory is a term that has been used for years, but it's only in the last few years that it's been um, just thought of as something that's horrific and, and shouldn't be taught. So um, I see it as an attack on our nation's democracy, really. Um, we have to be able to look at um, all sides of our um, uh, history, the good, the bad, the ugly, and, um, and tackle it from that. Yeah, I think that's great thing. I mean, that was a really good answer. Wonderful answer. And I think that, yeah, as a society, you know, we should think critically about race. And I think that the reaction to critical race theory is often uh, a result of people not wanting to look under the floorboards, not wanting to look at the history, not wanting to look at the skeletons of what's happened. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that some of the scapegoat's not the right word, but the what people are looking for is because critical race theory is so closely tied to critical theory from the Frankfurt School. And critical theory has been used towards sexuality by people like Michel Foucault. And mm -hmm. you know, and even earlier in the comments where critical theory is used to um, not just be, not just critique, structural racism which exists but it it also has a tendency to be um a gospel without jesus if i can put it that way um 
where, where we need to diagnose and be critical, but to have Christ at the center of it. And I think that some people who don't want to deal with racism just want to throw it away. And, and, and some want to use it as the all be all the, the, you know, I can't remember how to say that. Um, but it, I think that that's where some of the hesitancy and excuses are coming from. And so how do we differentiate between the critical theory as the be all and still be bold enough to enter into this difficult history? Yeah, well said, Clark. Yes, yes, I, I agree. I agree. And I think I'm going to just read um, Sonika uh, and Willie put in the chat, but I want to read it for everyone. I think this is an excellent uh, response. The debate about critical race theory is indeed largely ridiculous, as you said, Lisa. A politics of fear and manipulation of ignorance should not hijack the church and keep it from seeing things in the way the Lord Jesus would have exposed the hypocrisy of a history of oppression. Mm, that's great. But well said, well said. That's really wonderful. Uh, I think uh, Linda has a comment. Mark. Well, I was just gonna say, which kind of goes upon that. Um, critical race theory, the, I think a huge problem with how it's being presented uh, legislatively and so on uh, in our culture right now is that people just swallow what they hear on social <laughs> other things without actually reading what critical race theory is. Mm -hmm. If if you look at critical race theory and what it's trying to purport is to expose that our nation has systemic racism and all of that, if you look at what the theory is, there's it just brings out the truth of what we are. Um, but we don't want to look at ourselves. We, we don't want to look at our ills that we have uh, brought up. And I'm saying we as as a nation tend not to we as white americans tend are, are not as a group um are not wanting to look at that because it makes us look we have to face the sin and the stench that we have lived in and we have to face the fact that we benefit from such a system and people don't want to acknowledge that i'm benefiting from a system and i want to say that we're all created equal I don't benefit from it any more than uh, a black American benefits from it because we're all created equal. However, we aren't, we are all created as equal souls in God's eyes, sure enough, but within the fabric of uh, this nation, we weren't created equal. And so that's the critical race theory that we don't want to look at the true history. So it's easier to throw scripture and, and, or ID, Christian ideology and speaking Christianese and that we're all created equal. And so if we teach that uh, there is white privilege or that there is systemic racism that uh, my forefathers participated in, and so therefore I'm a part of that if I don't uh, come against that. Uh, I don't want to view that. And, and so that's where the problem is. Too many people don't want to view who we are. And so we can Christianize it to make it look like, well, that's not true. Um, 
So that's my take on, on because we don't know what critical race theory is. They pick out a few different things and just that just keeps getting spent over and over and over and saying that this is what critical race theory is. And if you look at the whole basis of what it actually is, it, it is not what is being put. Uh, I think Iowa passed a law that educators cannot teach about systemic racism. And it's like, well, how can you not teach about what something is? Um, it's like teaching you on the same token. Okay, let's not teach about if you believe it or not, don't teach about evolution, because I don't believe it exists if you do or don't. I'm, I'm not saying either way on either side, but we yet we teach it. And so that that's the thing. Let's critically look at it and find out what is actually being said. And then we can educate with education, deduce and live what actually we historically have lived. Thank you. Thanks, Mark, for that. That was that was very well said. Um, Arlene, you have a question or a comment? Yeah, com yeah the comment primarily is the fact that, like uh, I think Mark just said, that, that people are, in a sense, jumping on the bandwagon. And now, basically, a lot of people are, could, are basically could almost saying that, that critical race theory and Black are, are synonymous. Mm -hmm. and, and anything Black now is almost being criticized. Anything they talk about, for example, the state of Alabama has a, uh, is proposing legislation to uh, do away with Black History Month. And, you know, just because, you know, they don't want the, you know, and, and you have to remember that that one of the purposes of black history was to raise the image in front of our own, uh, you know, children and so forth to say that there are good things that have happened. You know, black people have, have made many contributions to this country and trying to instill some pride because, you know, as long as our children feel like, you know, no one has confidence and belief in them, they don't strive, you know, they wouldn't strive to do better. But, uh, but now many people are being penalized. The uh, an outstanding principal in Texas uh, was, was uh, dismissed because of, of uh, I think it was something dealing with black, you know, uh, teaching or, or allowing his teachers to teach black and so forth. He was outstanding. All the, even the, the white children loved him and wanted him to stay, but the parents got on that bandwagon and now he's out of a job, you know, black principal. Mm -hmm. But it's just, you know, uh, we are being penalized in a sense again because of uh, this, this concept, you know, of, of, of this, uh, this racist concept, let's say it like that. And, and again, I'll just repeat as a, as a just piggybacking on what Arlene is saying. As a democracy, we have to be very, um, I've, I've had the opportunity to live in other countries to, to visit. I've, I've visited more than 45 countries. Um, if you want to say living as far as staying more than a couple of months, I've lived in six countries. Uh, and, and one of the things that I've noticed is that America has the privilege that we have do largely because we are a democracy. Um, and once you do away with that, you can become, um, you know, there are many things, uh, dictatorship, um, autocracy, uh, you know, lots of things, but 
the the one thing that I notice in other countries when they don't give one segment of the uh, population certain rights or 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 human rights, it causes the whole population to suffer. But also, it causes the nation not to be as um, prosperous as they as they could be. So um, we have to be careful. I think in America, we really need to be careful and really consider what we're doing here. Because if we don't, we may find ourselves making a world for our children and grandchildren that um, will, would be unrecognizable to us, and and a world where. Um, We've got the haves and the have-nots, um, and and really the kings and the peasants. Um, and every great, when you look at history, and you look at the great the the, the great empires or the or the great kingdoms or whatever you want might want to call them, um, it's interesting to study what caused their fall. And, and so I think that um, if we don't tackle this race issue, and I believe that Christians should be the leading, um, having the leading charge, we're, I, and this is not being a prophet of doom, but I just think that we're in danger of losing um, the, the great aspects of the, the nation that we live in. Uh, fascinating talk. Uh, one thing I was gonna say is if you look at South Africa, apartheid ended in the church. It was through the church that you had the interracial services. You had the blacks and whites coming. And uh, one of the places that I had gone with my parents uh, in 87 was to a place called the Durban Christian Center. And I remember that was sort of, it was controversial because it was seen as this token church where blacks went just to be seen or something along those lines. I know Carla has done a lot more work with it, but you go up there and... um, it was, I mean, I had never been to a church like this. It was a huge theater, buses lined up for blocks. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen so many school buses in my life or buses that were busing people in from the townships. And this was a church in 1987, the midst of apartheid, when everything is, you know, the news is full of things, uh, of violence, like anything, coming together, blacks and whites throughout the church. And uh, it, was just, it was just an amazing, amazing experience to see that, just how uh, this is where it started. And it wasn't just in the church. It was also in the Sunday school. Excellent. Thanks for that remark, Jeremy. Elise, you had something else? Yeah, I can be quick. I know that it's almost nine. <laughs> um, but which is like midnight, Arlene's time. Over in Georgia. <laughs> but, um, uh, uh, thinking about the the conversation on critical race theory and um, just the unwillingness of white America to look at and acknowledge its past. Um, I the like um, I've been doing a a read through the Bible group with my church. And um, was reading in numbers recently. And the story that comes to mind is in numbers 21, where, um, you know, Israel is doing what they do, rebelling. And um, the, the Lord sends snakes among them to bite them and <laughs> kill them. And 
um, the like antidote is to set up this bronze snake that people have to look at um, in order to be healed. And I think I was just, as I was reading that, I was like, wow, what a, what a powerful picture of acknowledgement and mm. lament, like steps as you walk towards repentance, but like to have to look a representation of your sin in the face <laughs> um, is, I mean, hard and is also what we're unwilling to do. And I think that CRT and all of the conversations around it um, and the laws that are being passed are a way of trying to just bury that down. So, yeah. Thank you for that beautiful uh, uh, depiction of that. Well, Lisa, well, it's, it's, um, we usually close at nine. So we usually close at midnight your time. Uh, you have been tremendous. Uh, thank you for being so articulate, insightful, and, uh, and really helpful through, through looking at Romans, the biblical witness, and, uh, and also the call for us to really reconcile in the name of Jesus. So I really thank you and we all appreciate it. So thank you very much for having me.